Welcome to Boat Talk on Community Radio, WERU-FM Blue Hill. Boat Talk is usually a call-in boating show, but we're in the dry dock right now and pre-recording the show, so I'm afraid we can't take calls in this show. I'm Alan Sprague, and co-host Mike Joyce and frequent guest John Johansson will be joining the show in a little while, but first we have an interview with Charles Lagerbaum who recently wrote a book called Pirates of Maine. The book just came out a couple of weeks ago and is available locally. I started by asking Charles how he started writing. I started doing research for a Ph.D. program probably 15 uh, years ago at the University of Maine in Orono in the History Department. I had gotten my master's there back in the early 90s, and I always kind of wanted to, to play around with some historical topic of Maine. And I had the good fortune of going to the Antarctic on a couple of seasons with the uh, Quaternary Institute out of Orono. And so the Antarctic history really got me going. I ended up publishing a book about a polar explorer. And that got me connected with people around Maine. But I always noticed that Maine itself had some really great connections with the polar regions. Uh, whether ships that were built that went there, uh, explorers who either had homes here like Peary or, you know, McMillan. Um, Bird even had a summer place out at uh, Tunk Lake. Um, and so there, every time I talked about it with somebody, they always said, well, you know, my neighbor, you know, uh, his great-great-grandfather went whaling in the Arctic or this or that. And so every time I, I kind of shook the tree, more information fell out. And so I just started collecting all this information, connecting Maine with the polar regions, both Arctic and Antarctic. And whaling was just one piece to it. I ended up not finishing up the, uh, the PhD program. I had most of my dissertation written, so a ton of information. Uh, and so just within the last two, three years, I started to do stuff with it and publish some papers out of it and so forth. And I noticed that I had a pretty good chunk of whaling information connected with Maine. And I got into that, and what was really cool about it was that it allowed me to go local. Um, you know, I went around to little towns, historical societies. Um, I, I hunted down like some tombstones of, of people who had been whaling and so forth. And the more I kept looking at Maine and whaling, I kept thinking, wow, this was a, a pretty significant contribution that Maine made. Um, and so I kind of pieced this together as a, uh, a writing project because I kept finding good stories. I kept finding great connections, interesting people, at, you know, uh, like a local in Belfast. And I'd be like, I wonder where he is now. I mean, he lived in the 1850s. See if I can find him or his family. And, and that alone opened up all kinds of great doors. So it's just been a, a fun run. And my thesis is basically that I think Maine can kind of hold itself right alongside with the major centers of whaling. I mean, you think of Nantucket, you think of New London, you think of New Bedford. I'm, I make the argument in my book that Maine has just as much colorful, connective history with whaling as those centers do that are better well known. So what started 
Pirates of Maine specifically? Nathan Lipford from uh, uh, the uh, Maine Maritime Museum sent me a list of ships that he thinks, you know, from Maine that had been built in Maine that had engaged in whaling. And that was a really great starting point to kind of, you know, follow them uh, and trace them and so forth. And uh, uh, there's some great ship industry or uh, registries and online databases and things like that. And like I said, every piece had a great story. And, you know, so I started keeping track of all this and I thought, gosh, this, this is almost like book length stuff. Uh, you know, at first I was kind of thinking this would make a pretty cool article, uh, you know, about Maine and whaling. And, and the more, like I said, I shook the tree, you know, I thought I've got enough, you know, for an entire great story. So. How did you put the book together? I mean, how did you organize it? It kind of uh, fell into a couple different patterns when I was doing the research. First off, it was just Maine itself connection with whaling. And that goes all the way back to the Native Americans. Uh, the Algonquin legends about uh, Gluskat and, uh, you know, going out hunting for the whales and stuff. So whaling in Maine been connected even before the arrival of the Europeans. Um, with their arrival, they began uh, basically uh, uh, whaling as well, mostly just ones that washed up on shore and so forth. Uh, the, I found some records of them starting uh, like small ventures, but nothing deep water yet. Um, and this was in the early 1600s, 1700s, and so forth. Uh, it's really about the uh, um, War of 1812, well, maybe even a little before that, right about the turn of the century, that Maine really kind of started to get more involved with it, uh, with whaling in general. And that was uh, um, mostly, you know, uh, because Nantucket and New Bedford and others were taking off about that time as well. Um, some of the favorite things that I've come across are, are like the locals. Uh, first off, the need for, uh, for the oil. Um, you know, a lot of the, the, the whaling lamps and, of course, all the, uh, uh, the baleen uh, items, whether it's uh, corsets or uh, umbrella, uh, you know, uh, uh, pieces to it, um, you know, things like that. And that kind of got me to where I could find collections of it around the state. And that led me to like the Penobscot Marine Museum or uh, eventually like New Bedford, farther afield and so forth. But there's quite a bit of collection of actual, uh, you know, uh, uh, either whale teeth or uh, whale bone carvings or things like that in the, in the state. At the Maine Historical Society, I found a really nice hairpin, a uh, woman's hairpin uh, that was made from whale bone. Um, but uh, one of the, the local guys that I, I was really interested in was uh, a Pittsfield native, a guy by the name of Sylvanus Baker. Um, he became known as the Pagoda Artisan, and he would carve uh, whale teeth uh, with Chinese pagodas on it uh, and uh, became very well known for it, became known as the, the pagoda artisan. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, New Bedford just had a, an entire shelf of teeth um, dedicated to him. And uh, I, I snapped a picture of a couple of them, and I think that shows up in the book. Uh, but I thought that was pretty cool. And I, I haven't been able to find where he's located. He's, he's still on my list. I, I'd like to find where he was kind of buried. I, I assume it's around Pittsfield somewhere. I've been looking through a lot of the, the cemetery possibilities, but uh, a lot of bakers over there. Um, and so kind of difficult to, uh, 
to find it that way. Um, what are some other connections? Oh, uh, Andrew Carnegie, great story with him. Um, in that when he was a kid and came over from Scotland, penniless as an immigrant, he came uh, across aboard the Wiscasset. Now, at that time, it was an immigrant carrier. But before that, it was a whaling ship that sailed out of Wiscasset and had a great history with it. And the interesting thing about it is that there's a, uh, a postcard that was eventually um, published with information about Andrew Carnegie on it of a sketch drawing of the Wiscasset. And that, uh, uh, you know, the story goes that, uh, you know, uh, Carnegie didn't like the crossing. It was, he was very seasick. It, the ship rolled. It was bad and so forth. And so they presented him uh, a whale tooth from one of the Wiscasset whaling operations uh, um, way before um, Carnegie was on the ship. And uh, so he, that was in his, one of his possessions there um, that I found inventoried uh, there with his estate. And supposedly, and then the, the comment was, uh, he made that uh, his luxury yacht was like three times the size of the Wiscasset, you know, so that it would never, you know, rock and roll like it did you know, when he came over. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, just, just all kinds of pretty interesting things like that. Um, some, some pretty famous names in the world of whaling were actually, actually had some like main connections with it. This guy named Edward Merrill that I traced back. He was born in Durham, Maine. And he went on to become a huge deal down in New Bedford. In fact, Merrill Wharf down in New Bedford, he built, named after it. He, he started, he, he whaled for a while and then he went into the whaling business and financed others, you know, to go do the work and so forth. And, you know, there's a restaurant down there with uh, some paintings of him as a young man in his prime and then as an elderly gentleman as well. And so that was kind of cool. Um, and I found a really cool stereoscope of those old cards with the two version or the, the, the two pictures on it of Merrill Wharf back in its heyday. So, again, like con um, following through on connections like that. Um, let's see. Uh, Leander Owen, he's probably one of the more famous names of whaling, uh, whaled for years and years. Uh, he was uh, out of Brownfield, uh, Maine. Uh, went to New Bedford as a young guy, worked his way up through the ranks, uh, took time off to fight in the Civil War alongside uh, Admiral Porter for the Union, then went back to whaling. Uh, you know, I, the, some of the, uh, the whaling, like New Bedford uh, databases and stuff have just this a great printout of all the ships that he captained and their their catches and everything like that and that's a good point i did find a lot of information online uh, like database wise uh, new bedford is just phenomenal with it um, and then there's a couple other sites and you would click on their name and so that would give me a start and then i would dive locally into all right leander owen of brownfield maine let's look him up you know that sort of thing um, so that was that's pretty neat um and i that led me to Amos Chase, a, another famous guy. Uh, he died in 1915, actually, after about um, you know, 60, 70 years at sea. And I found his grave in Westbrook, uh, uh, down in Westbrook. Uh, I was actually talking to him or talking about him to a buddy of mine from Westbrook. And he goes, you know, there's an Amos Chase buried in, in the cemetery where you know, my grandparents are buried. I'm like, really? And sure enough, we went down and found it. 
Um, so over and over, just some great, great connections. What was really kind of cool was in locally, I'm, I mean, I'm from Belfast. And so I found a Belfast native, Thomas Jefferson Burgess. He was 22 years old, signed on uh, two whale trips. And again, the whale trips are like three to five years each. So it's a good chunk of your life. Um, he must have suffered some sort of injury because uh, during the Civil War, he got mustered into service, but failed the physical. Uh, and the doctor said because it was a, an old hip injury, trochanter or something uh, major. And uh, uh, come to find out, it was he had suffered it during the uh, whaling. So uh, um, yeah, the, the local uh, uh, historical society lady was just really enthralled. Because I, I came to her with like these lists of names because I found you know, uh, um, whaling crews. And a lot of times they would say of Maine or sometimes even better of Belfast, Maine or Pittsfield, Maine and that sort of thing. And so that got me, you know, a few steps further. And so I took this name of all the Waldo County guys I could find that went whaling, gave it to her. And she was just like, Oh my gosh, Thomas Jefferson Burgess. Yes. I've got a photograph of him. And, you know, and so again, like I was saying, you shake the tree and just, these great, great stories come out. Just poking around like the Searsport or the uh, Marine, Penobscot Marine Museum in Searsport was phenomenal. And they were so great about, you know, I'd say like, well, I'm interested in um, a whale ship called the, uh, the United States. And they're like, oh, gosh, we've got, a, uh, we've got one of its journals from one of its whales. I'm like, no kidding. And they brought it out and I got to look through it. And it was even storm damaged. It had like some water stains on it and stuff. You know, and so I'm just sitting there and I'm like, this is like history at its best. I mean, my gosh, it doesn't get much better than this, being elbow deep in, in this stuff. Um, so it, it, it's really just been kind of a labor of love. And over and over again, Mainers answered the bell. And that was, that was really cool to see. Um, and so the, that's the early part of the book is about the people and the communities like Wiscasset building, you know, or purchasing the Wiscasset and, you know, trying their community ventures because that's what they needed. It, it had to be enough money. It wasn't single-handed. It wasn't that much of a corporation at that point. Um, they had to be community ventures. Um, so, but that kind of petered out by the 1830s and 40s, especially the, the panic of 1837 um, decimated a lot of uh, uh, people, uh, towns who were just trying it to see if if they could become the next New London or, you know, Sag Harbor or something like that. Did you include any boats? Getting into like the ships that came out of the state, that was really cool too. That's, I kind of, you know, really liked that. I mean, the personal stories were kind of neat, but the fact that Maine had so many ships that were built that some went directly into whaling and those are more the, the steam barks out of Bath later in the, the century um, after the Civil War and so forth. But I mean, as early as the 1820s, they were building ships that went into whaling. Uh, and one of them was the, uh, uh, the Two Brothers. Uh, and that shipped out in 1821. And the captain of it was the guy from the Essex, the one that the whale destroyed and, uh, you know, was the basis of Moby Dick. Yeah. Uh, you know, so, uh, and, and I found the two Mainers shipped aboard that, that ship at the time, Thomas Nickerson and Charles Ramsdale. Um, you know, but uh, the, the master was George Pollard, the guy that, you know, ended up, uh, you know, uh, getting destroyed by the ship. And, and that ship actually uh, ran aground and was destroyed. And there's this great quote by Pollard that says, 
well, they're never going to give me another ship after losing two like that, you know. So, uh, um, and what's cool about the uh, two brothers is that it, it's, it's out in Micronesia, uh, but uh, underwater archaeologists have found traces of it. And I was able to get the, the report that uh, the archaeologists had put together and got some, some good photographs about that. I, I put a lot of this stuff together in like a PowerPoint, you know, talk that, you know, to, to go around to like local societies and stuff like that. But I mean, that ship, the two brothers was built in Hollowell in 1804. And, and that's another thing. Again, Hollowell, you know, where the, the Pierces were from and all these connections keep kind of, you know, coming out. And I'm thinking these areas are way more connected with whaling than anybody ever thought. And I thought, this is a good story that needs to be told. Cranberry Isles had a, uh, a town, or well, the, the people of Cranberry Isles, um, they built a, a little one-deck sloop and uh, uh, sailed it on up to, to Greenland and came back with the seal uh, and, and whale uh, and uh, made a lot of money. And so about three, four years later, the son went, his name was Samuel Hadlock Jr. He went with half the town men and young boys and they never returned and demographically it, it just like decimated the islands because you lost you know probably 50 percent of the young men and marriageable men you know and so forth you know and, and that was the deal that I mean high risk high reward bigger chunk of the book is more the ships and I start with um, early on um, turn of the century, 1790s, 1800s, when whale ships, U.S. whale ships, started to go around Cape Horn. Now, they had always been kind of in the North Atlantic and then in the South Atlantic, around like the Falkland Islands and off Brazil and so forth. And then they had been over towards the Azores and Africa and so forth. Um, but by 1800, they started to go around the Horn. And this is where it connects with uh, uh, my Revolutionary War trading post I did my master's thesis on, and that the son of the truck master who ran that during the revolution, his son, uh, William Lauder, was a, uh, on board a whale ship that went around the Horn sometime in the 1790s and visited Chile and so forth. Um, so that kind of tied it all together with me some more. I go into a lot of detail on just different ships and tracing them uh, like the Lucy Ann in the 1840s and wouldn't have been much of a story about the Lucy Ann, except one of the guys on board the ship was an artist and did all kinds of watercolors of the ship and the whaling and so forth. And new Bedford just republished his journals, you know, with, you know, very nicely digitized images of the whale ships and so forth. You know, and I'm like, oh, that's the Lucienne. Well, that was built in, uh, you know, in Maine in, in you know, the 1830s. And it, it, it's just been a, a pride, uh, you know, a, a fun run, really. What else is in the book? The rest of the book, I, I do basically chapters, you know, like the beginnings and then like the golden age when from like 1830s to the 1850s, Maine was just cranking out ships. Um and the American whaling industry just really took off whole hog. Uh, and so it, uh, uh, you know, that was like the, the heyday, the golden age. Um, and then the American Civil War happens. And that even impacts it in that the, um, I found, I traced a lot of main ships that had gone into whaling 
that were victims of Confederate raiders, whether it was the Alabama or the Florida, uh, it, uh, especially uh, uh, you know the uh, Shenandoah that went got up into the Arctic and uh, decimated the whale fleet up there uh, in uh, 1865. Actually, uh, considered to be some of the last shots of the war because it was after Appomattox, um, but they didn't know that at the time. Um, you know, so the Civil War really rocked the industry and it, you know, put a chill on Maine ships and so forth. But then after the war, Maine starts up again. And this is where we start to get into the more of the mechanized, uh, the, the uh, steam powered barks uh, out of Bath and so forth. And that was to help them maneuver more in the Arctic ice flows and stuff. And they got up out of the Bering Sea up into the, you know, above Alaska and, uh, uh, and what, basically ended that was uh, a couple major ice disasters where 1871 was one of the worst. Uh, several whale ships were all trapped up there. Uh, um, several hundreds of men in the crews and their wives and children who had been up there with them. Uh, they had to trek overland to get out of there. Uh, and then there was another one in the early 1890s where uh, some U.S. Coast Guard guys had to drive herds of reindeer up to feed these guys <laughs> until they can get brought out. So a couple big devastating hits like that on the American whale fleet. By 1900, the whole entire industry is, is pretty much on its way out. And many of these ships that had been built in Maine, I'm trying to trace where they ended up as well. You know, many were sold to foreign countries that still engaged in whaling up for a while. And I would find like, oh, this one was renamed the Kamchatka and, you know, was bought by the Russians and renamed this and eventually was lost, you know, in, you know, the, Be you know, uh, the Bering Sea in 1920 and so forth. And so pretty much by World War I, the story's over and it, it, and Maine's involvement with it. And so Maine just kind of mirrored and paralleled this entire journey. You mentioned photographs. Where, where did you find them? Going through trying to find images was a great, you know, research trip in and of itself. Um, you know, not just finding images of what I could use or what would really be great, but then going through the whole process of like, uh, you know, getting permissions and, uh, uh, you know, in a lot of these places that I, I found, um, I mean, there's a museum up in uh, Aroostook County that, has a, uh, that had a, uh, uh, a blubber knife, a flensing knife. And uh, I don't know how I came across that, but I said, I contacted the person. I said, you know, is there any way you could like go snap an image of it? And they're like, yeah, I got my phone. I'll go, I'll be back in you know, five minutes and sent me this image and so forth. And they were all great about when I would tell them what I, I plan to do with this. I said, well, this is going to, this is going to become a book. You know, it, it's history press. It's, it, you know, it, it's a, uh, you know, not a, not a major run, but it's, it's a pretty good run. And I said, and my goal is that I want to use it in my marine studies course that I teach at the high school too. Um, because I think not only learning about like, you know, commercial possibilities with, you know, Maine today, I think these kids should learn, you know, some of the, the commercial enterprises that came before, like whaling um, or like the ice industry, which was kind of big here in Waldo County, uh, you know, where they, they built in the, the Belfast shipyards specially built ships that could um because they had an exclusive ice contract with jacksonville florida and jacksonville florida has a i don't know a particular type of reef that you got to get over to get into jacksonville and so the belfast ships were built specifically 
to get over that. And I thought, that's another great connection. It had nothing to do with whaling, but, uh, you know, just, just good stuff all around. How can people find Pirates of Maine? We're hoping to, to, to get it into uh, uh, local bookstores around the state of Maine. My, my plan is to uh, make it available online. The History Press, uh, definitely their website will have it available. My goal is to just basically get the word out. Down in Bath at the Maine Maritime Museum, the book will hopefully be, be available uh, the, at the Penobscot Marine Museum store uh, because they were big, they were very instrumental and helpful in it. Maine Maritime uh, gave me permission on some of the, their photographs. Penobscot Marine Museum did the same. They were very great and very gracious about it. And so uh, I am very happy that they are the repositories of a lot of these things. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad things are easing now where hopefully people can get back in to these places and, uh, you know, kind of enjoy these, uh, these great historic connections with Maine. That's Charles Lagerbaum, author of Pirates of Maine, just recently published. He's going to be doing uh, some talks locally. Uh, one of them is going to be through the Camden Library on the 16th, just uh, two days from now, uh, via Zoom. Just go to the Camden Public Library website and check out what's happening on the 16th of July, and I'm sure you'll be able to Make your connections there. So thank you again, Charles Lagerbaum. And it's on to lobster boat racing with John Johansson. John Johansson is the editor and roving reporter for the Maine Coastal News. And as such, he goes to boat shops up and down the coast to get the latest news. Unfortunately, he starts with some bad news this time. Just recently, we lost Andy Gove from Stonington. Now, Andy oh, yeah. was a was an incredible fisherman. He grew right. up on Eagle Island uh, and moved to Stonington, uh, made a living as a lobster fisherman and a, a heron fisherman. And, of course, anybody who's been on the racing circuit knows Andy Gove and especially Uncle's UFO, which was a Northern Bay 36 with a 900-horsepower mac in it and uh that boat has been sold to nick weberg also of stonington and renamed miss katie but now on the 12th of july when we're supposed to run the stonington lobster boat races because they've been canceled uh we're going to do a boat parade at 12 o'clock in stonington up the up the thoroughfare in memory of andy so nobody's going ashore so that there's no, you know, we can social distance in our boats. <laughs> so that's what they're doing for him. But the races, uh, they went off without a hitch. I talked to the Coast Guard in Rockland. They were more than pleased with how it went. We had 62 boats. Uh, one of the first races that was interesting was uh, between Wide Open and Black Diamond. Wide Open is a 1954, I believe, Robert Rich built wooden boat. And she went up against the Holland 32 uh, Black Diamond, owned by Lindsay Durkee from Islesboro, and Wide Open won that race. Uh, another one that was kind of interesting was uh, Last Design and Venom went at it in Diesel Class C. Uh, and they've been battling it for about three years, the two. And they're pretty close. It depends on who's played with their engine a little more than the other. And sometimes yeah. it also takes place of who got out of the hole first. 
You know, sometimes you can get a little bit of a jump at the start and it helps. Uh, uh, let's see. Uh, right Stuff went up against a brand new boat called Little Lisa Marie, which is a uh, Muscle Ridge 28, which was originally the Wayne Beal 28 mold. Uh, and that was a good race. Uh, right Stuff actually uh, took that race. Uh, we bet that the little Lisa Marie comes back with a little more horsepower. Uh, Maria's Nightmare. Last year, most people would remember her with a great big gas engine, almost 2,500 horsepower. She's been repowered with a diesel. I can't remember the horsepower, but it put her the in The other class. one wasn't big enough, yeah. No, it got so that it was a little... They're hard to... It's not hard to handle... Well, actually, in Winter Harbor, he put it... Well, he put it on the side. And... But this time... Uh, the biggest problem is is how expensive running a big gas motor is because yeah, right. if you run them a lot, you're tearing them down a lot, and it runs into big, big money. So now yeah. he's got a nice little diesel. It doesn't take too much to take care of, yeah. and uh, he easily run his class in J. Gold Digger continued her way. That's Heather Thompson from Har- Harrington. And uh, what was interesting was later on when those two boats went head-to-head, and they're pretty well evenly matched, Maria's Nightmare and Gold Digger. Because in Bass Harbor, it went back and forth of who was going to win. Uh, at Bass Harbor, there was 49 boats, which was pretty good. Uh, we did everything out on a barge. A uh, little smaller barge than last year, but more than adequate. Uh, we did nothing ashore. Uh, there was a couple boats or a few boats that stayed overnight. Because, of course, they went from Rockland. Some stayed in Rockland that night, but others came right over to uh, Bass Harbor and stayed uh, Saturday night there. Uh, And that race, we saw Black Diamond with Lindsay Durkee taking wide open with about two boat lengths. So did she get him out of the hole or did she play with her engine or what she do? But she, she bested him all day long at his home port. So... Anyways, and then Venom got by last design in Diesel Class C, which was pretty good. Uh, There was uh, a great race in Diesel Class E. There were three Hollands. There there was Miss Kylie, Bad Influence, and Audrey May. And there was an AJ28 called High Voltage. And uh, Miss Kylie had won the day before, but this day, High Voltage had... A little more power, I believe, and he eked out the win because it was all close. The I bet the top three boats didn't come within maybe a boat length of each other when they came across the line. Uh, John, couple bo- sp- yep. I'm sorry. You speak of uh, getting out of the hole, which is the genius of this uh, race in the business of lobster boats. They're not planing boats. They belong in the water, not on it. But if you apply enough power, they'll come up out of the hole. And, oh, they and, come out uh, of the hole. <laughs> and some of them had bigger keels than others. And I've been on uh, at least one that liked the keel flop while it was up out of the hole. Then, you know, yeah, we haven't seen, yeah, we haven't seen too much of that problem recently. And sometimes you wonder if it, it uh, these guys have figured out where to put the lifting rails. 
uh-huh. yes, and uh, we used to put um, clapboards under the back corner um, of the hall where the transom was to give it a just slightly little a shingle there. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, here's the other question, uh, John. Uh, they ain't making Andy Goves anymore, are they? Um, no. No. Um, and knew that if they worked hard, life would always be better. There'd be more fish, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and you could get that to your kids, and there'd be more fish. And um, you know. Yeah, it was interesting because I'm down here in New Hampshire and interviewed a uh, lobster fisherman from Rockport, Massachusetts, to learn more about some of the boats that were there from Maine, but got his life story. And that's one of the things he said. It's very, very different when he fished, but it was different from the generation that was in front of him. And he says now it's different from his generation to his yeah. son's generation. Yeah. Because, yeah. And, you know, it's kind of interesting what went on in Rockport, Massachusetts, in that harbor, because there was a big tool company. And when that went out of business, it really threw the fishermen a, uh, a monkey wrench because of the fact that the tool factory owned their dock. And then the tool factory got sold to a developer. And it it became, well, it became a big mess, but they won in the end. And it was interesting how they won. They basically didn't have to do anything. And then one of the, uh, something like a contract had run out and the developers had to bow out. So they ended up with the property going to the town, and they uh, basically paid the town. Getting back to the lobster boat racing, uh, we had a couple boat shows, and one was interesting because it's an 8 May 28, built for the owner, Alan Johnson. It's got an interesting history because he was a nuclear engineer on on a couple of big uh, submarines uh, during the 60s and maybe the early 70s, and he brought his boat. Wasn't really competitive, but, you know, he was out having fun. And we haven't seen him for years because he used to run the Winter Harbor Lobster Boat Races way, way back. And then another one we hadn't seen for a number of years was Ira Guptill from Jonesport. He brought Mystery Machine, which is a Northern Bay 36. And I think he repowered it with a 750 horsepower engine. Well, she certainly showed her transom to a bunch of boats in her class. Uh, But then we got into the diesel free-for-all and the free-for-all and that was kind of interesting because uh, Maria's nightmare got by gold digger in the diesel free-for-all but he couldn't get by her in the fastest lobster boat so that was kind of fun and then the fastest lobster boat in uh, Bass Harbor was wide open which is that 50 1954 wooden boat with a 350 in it so hey John you speak of all these different engines, gas, uh, diesel, expense, uh, you know, and the boys show up mm-hmm. for the boat races. Uh, how important, uh, you know, uh, what do they think about the lobster boat races? Uh, you know, what, well, you know, in Rockland, it was kind of, of well, you know, in Rockland, it was kind of sad because they told us we were the only event that was going to happen in Rockland this summer. We were it. Yeah. You know, in Bass well, Harbor, Alan, we don't have to emcee uh, the dogs. That's the only thing of the year that makes me nervous is standing up doing the boatyard dog thing in front. Of yeah, that of boat show. That morning. boat show got canceled, and oh, today, Lord, I'm and not today, happy, but you know. <laughs> and today, the Newport 
International Boat Show in Newport, Rhode Island was canceled. Oh, yeah, right. And we figured that that was going to happen, and we figured that Fort Lauderdale's not far behind. No, uh, uh, you know, in America, I'm telling you what, uh, live free and die, buddy. Um, yeah. <laughs> we ain't been, uh, we're outperforming the rest of the world on that. Uh, best of luck uh, fighting Mother Nature and uh, blaming it on, no, I'm sorry to <laughs> say that on Boat Talk, uh, you know. Alan's good on the technical thing, but hello, good night. Uh, like I say, good luck. Yeah. But, you know, it's too bad because in some cases, and I, when you think about a boat show, and especially Newport, they got like 35,000 people go through there in four days. How are you oh, going to oh. social distance? There's no way. Oh, no. But let's go back to restaurants, hotels, uh, stores. I mean, you know, my God, that's a lot of money going around. Oh, yeah. It's uh, and again, that's the thing. This uh, whole thing teaches us how the web is connected. To, uh, it's webby. My God, mm-hmm. you got more connections than you can appreciate on a regular day. Well, um, there's, there's a way to get rid of that. You shut wow. it off. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Which is a lot what I do, you know, because I can't, uh, you know, right now I'm inputting uh, or actually reformatting uh, the databases. Uh, for steam vessels from uh, 1867 to 1903. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, for half an hour. Oh, yes, because just E, I'm working in E, and it's 505 pages. Right, maybe yeah. an hour and a half. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But, you know, uh, things are going, yeah. it's, it's, you know, our next race is this Saturday. I don't know, because so, so this show is going to be... Uh, uh, after it, but we're racing in Jonesport. Uh, that almost became a non-race because somebody in town didn't want it to happen and kind of uh, pushed to make it uh, go away. But somebody jumped up and said, nope, we've got the uh, event permit from the Coast Guard. We're running. And they made it okay, happen. The boys like doing it. And oh, uh, yeah. you know, it's fun for them. And it's not it's sort of useful to be fast uh, when you're fishing, but um, it ain't the whole thing. And no. uh, just to segue here, if possible, uh, good Lord, this one from the Bangor Daily News study, lobstermen could use fewer traps. Study was, yeah, that's, uh, a, that's an interesting argument. Yeah. yeah. Who was it I was talking to? Oh, Wayne Canning. He used to be the layup man for uh, Wayne, uh, for uh, Glenn Holland, Holland's Boat yeah. Shop, the Holland sure. 3238. And yeah, he no was real interested about that. He thinks that if we, you know, take back a little bit, it's going to make the lobster in a lot better because there'd be more out there so that when, um, you know, you could fish less traps. I'm not sure how that works. A years ago, uh, back in the years when I had my Learjet, as, uh, you know, been um, um, – Back uh, past the turn of the century now, uh, three and a half million lobster traps registered on the coast of Maine, and we dodged all of them. But this lady, Hannah uh, Myers, graduate student at the University of Alaska's College of Fisheries, Ocean Studies, she looked at landings and data from lobster fishing crossing both sides of the line between Nova Scotia and Maine. And the research behind the study found that while Canadians spent fewer days at sea and they fished, there's fewer traps. The traps they pulled had almost four times as many lobsters in them. Right. The Canadians in the Gulf of Maine caught about the same amount of lobsters using seven and a half less times effort than the Maine 
people on the other side. Right. Uh, there might be a bunch of factors on this, but the evidence shows that reduced effort does not necessarily mean less lobsters. No. And the report also suggests that areas which lobster fishing is not as efficient as it could be, that uh, new whale protection rules have uh, boosted lobster abundance in those areas. And the uh, commissioner of the uh, DMR and Maine Lobsterman's Association had no comment. So, anger <laughs> day my news. Yeah, it, it'd be interesting to see how the Canadians got to that point. You know, I see a lot of that research in the old, old journals, like the Atlantic Fishermen from the 20s and 30s and 40s. And it'd be interesting to, you know, to actually go in and study that. Usually I go through and I read the article, but only like the caption in the first paragraph. Because if yeah. I spend a day, you know, an hour on that article, I'd never get done, you know. But all of that stuff's documented. And sometimes you wonder where that documentation went. You know, do they still use that old research? You know, is it available to the new people coming through? Sometimes I just think they reinvent the scientific wheel, I, you know. But. I, I get over to uh, Yarmouth a fair bit, delivering boats in Halifax. And uh, last time I was over Yarmouth, we had a fuel filter problem. And the guy across the dock was uh, Captain uh, oh, uh, Cal, uh, Acadian fella, uh, uh, retired uh, 38 years Coast Guard uh, Canadian, been to the North Pole uh, four times, favorite place on earth. He put us in his dually big truck, and took us on a tour up the Acadian shore. The boys are fitting out for herring, okay? Going to start first of the week, and uh, we're the end of the week before. Got to find a fuel filter. And ended up on Sunday, got the uh, lady owned the marine store out of church, right out of church, opened up the store and got us our thing. And I'm telling you what, we got quite a tour, and those boys are fishing way bigger, wider boats than us and driving bigger trucks. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. (laughs) They can go to the hospital, okay? They've got safety net underneath them. It makes a big difference. Right. Um, It also helps your body if you're not fishing, you know, uh, eight months of the year. Again, they take seasons off. Yes, it's highly regulated, and uh, uh, they're more prosperous than we are damn socialists. I'm telling you what, they're uh, socialists, and uh, we don't want to be that in America right now. We've got... uh, I don't know why we got, but, you know, best of luck, buddy. So. But, you know, one other thing that would be smart for a lot of people that make good money, and especially our fishermen, is to have financial advisors. Because a lot yeah. of them, if they used a financial advisor, they could probably realistically retire by the time they're 50. Oh, so they right. could actually slow down and not worry about it and save their body and not be so in so much pain the rest of their life, you know? John, you and I, uh, Alan and I are, are above average woodworkers, okay? Doesn't make us great businessmen or accountants. Uh, no. You are above average at journalism, but it doesn't make you, like I say, uh, you know. No. Uh, uh, you, know, but, uh, got, you know, I got a call yeah. from my uh, uh, accountant the other day. He says, have you ever thought about looking at Social Security? You know, because I don't look at that stuff. I don't, I'm not going to retire. He says, maybe it's financially smart if you do. <laughs> so, I don't know. He's going to look at it. I'm like I say, not, we can't all be everything, including the great leader. But uh, thank God uh, we got this far, and I can't wait to see what happens tomorrow. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. worried about stuff. and haven't been for a good boat ride in a while. 
just to be on the water. Oh yeah, in well, the ocean. Rocking, well, I got I got that. Boat. Mm. I I brought my boat from Yarmouth over to Harpswell and then Harpswell all the way to Rockland for the races. Oh. And that's a really interesting ride, especially if you go in between oh, yeah. the islands. Oh yes. And we did a lot of cutting. But my oh, wife yeah. didn't really like being towed from <laughs> Rockland to Well, we got outside of Rockland to uh Camden and then the engine died and we got to watch the stern of first team all the way to Searsport. <laughs> and being told at the end of a line is not as simple as most people would think. Um, no. It's really not. You uh, have to steer the boat. We've uh, made some trouble like that in the past. We won't tell that mm-hmm. story this evening, but you know. Um, yep. Yeah, I was there. Oh, man. And the uh, world keeps turning despite its... Uh, going to be a summer without some boats and some uh, people. Mm-hmm. and uh, But apparently, uh, people I talk to in the boat industry are still busy um, doing whatever yeah. they've been doing. And Yeah, the boat builders, and especially the boatyards, the boatyards love this fact that they can put up a sign that says keep out because they yeah. they found that they can get an awful lot more done. There you go. You know, and... Uh, I know that some of them are keeping the sign up just so that they can get more done because they're so swamped with work. Then I was told by an outboard dealer that a bunch of these people now are buying small boats with small outboards that have been sitting for a long time, thinking they got a good deal when in fact they didn't get a good deal because they're going to have to put a ton of money into the engine to even get it going, even if it's financially feasible. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, then I went into Blue Jackets, and I kind of wondered. They're the model company in Searsport. Searsport, yeah. Yeah, and I was kind of worried. You know, how are they faring through this thing, you know? It's just the opposite for them. They have been selling models left and right. Yeah. It was even better than it was it's normally at Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, puzzle industry could be doing good, too. I can't understand anybody to make a puzzle, but, you know. Nah, I can't do that. I solve them for a living, I, you know. Uh, so anyway, I don't wish myself another puzzle. Um, <laughs> yeah. Hey, um, how about the big ships down at Eastport? Um, oh, yeah, I got a big picture it. of that. I was yeah. down there at Rosie's, the hot dog place on the main wharf. Because, of course, yeah. you got to have a hot dog from Rosie's. Uh, but I got to, you know, and I love these cell phones because you can do a panorama shot. Right. And, you know, because otherwise it doesn't fit in a lens, I don't, you know, except my big camera that has a 28 millimeter lens on it. And so I was able to actually do a panoramic shot of that boat. It'll go up on Facebook probably Tuesday, uh, Thursday or Friday, because, of course, being in New Hampshire, I don't have access to that stuff. And, and again, we got uh, cruise boats that uh, got nothing to do, nowhere to go. These were down in Miami which is susceptible to hurricanes. They can't just mm-hmm. sit there. Yep. Plus, to get a ship is never good. Okay? Yep. It's expensive. It's full of people. we got nothing to do, nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. And uh, let's go back to uh, machinery like that. doesn't like Sedile. No. So, down in Eastport, Maine, we've got Chris Gardner, big friend of the Barefoot Blues. I've talked to him a lot over the years. Especially He's a good guy. Oh, God, Lord. He... Uh, Really fierce at what he does down in Eastport, and of course, uh, a couple of years back, the breakwater collapsed. Oh yeah, so, that was a good that was a good thing. And, and the they have spent a lot crushed. of money, yeah, to uh, put that back. Now um, they've got an empty pier there. 
that is uh, pretty huge. And uh, so they've got um, a, a big uh, cruise ship to come and spend, um, I'll find a thing, $1,500 a day. It's, uh, you know, a lot of money to tie up there. And <laughs> they uh, were hoping that their uh, Norwegian son is the first one to come. And uh, they were uh, hoping that the uh, bulk uh, cargo pier would come back as well a little bit, but it's not happening. It's just not happening no. at all. So uh, they've ended up tying up another Norwegian Sun uh, cruise ship, even bigger. Over there? The cargo pier now, yeah. So it is, you said they got another one? Yep, even bigger. Uh, wow. They're using that to pay down the debt. The problem was that they hooked up their sewer pipe at the front pier, but on cargo pier not. And if anybody comes into the cargo pier, they'll have to shift. But nobody's coming to the cargo pier. Right. So, and again, uh, good for Chris. Uh, um, looking at it, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's good for Eastport. Yeah. And these ships dominate and dwarf the waterfront. There's more people on either one of those ships than there are in town. <laughs> Yep. And let's think about one more thing, okay? Yeah. Um, captain of the ship. My ship is in Eastport. It's tied up. It's probably safe, okay? Mm-hmm. Go in the uh, cabin, do paperwork, read books, uh, talk to the family on Zoom, whatever. Oh, bad captain. What are all those crew members doing at idle? And how are you going to think about uh, how they are, what they want, what they need, and, you know, Right. And engage them. Yeah, they don't always stone the decks anymore just to keep them busy, do they? (laughs) Oh, good Lord. And again, uh, let's think about all those people. Got nothing freaking to do like the rest of America. It's hard, Mm -hmm. okay? Um, They can't get off the boat. Well, can they get off the boat once they do 14 days? No, apparently not at all. And uh, again, not a bad prison they're on, but just saying, if I was captain of that boat, I would be worried about the prisoners, their motivations, intents, and uh, like I say, getting them. Um, yeah, that'd be a good captain. How about. many people are on board? Uh, Nine hundred on one of them, I think. Crew wow. Members. Yeah. Yeah, and that was a small one. Well, they got all those pools and everything. That's kind of neat. Again, a hard prison, but still, <laughs> just saying, you know. And interesting again from leadership and. Uh, if you've got a good captain that can keep all this stuff straight and keep the people informed and motivated and on the right page, good. But right, I said it on the Barefoot Blues out a long time ago. You can't be elected captain that's learned an earned position, especially if you've never been on a boat and don't even know how one works or care, mm-hmm. you know, or need to learn um, traveling on a false chart and wondering if you're going to hit something, how hard when. Yeah, <laughs> here we are. Like we said, uh, the boatyards are pretty busy. Uh, I stopped in at Wayne Beals, and one of the boats last summer that burned up at Long Island off of Portland, that thing's almost done, and it looks almost brand new. I mean, she, yeah, she burned up, uh, as Jeremy Beal, who runs Wayne Beals Boat Shop, said now. So the hull wasn't damage that much but the rest of it they basically stripped her out to a bear hull and they totally rebuilt it starting probably in february and she's now ready to go uh and i know that h and h because i stopped in there and talked to them briefly uh last week and 
they're maxed right out. They're right there as you enter Stuben on the left mm-hmm. side. They do the Osmond boats. And uh, Moses, who's, who's really Moses, just down the road in uh, Goolsboro, is supposed to have Tim Toppins' boat ready. but And it was supposed to make the first lobster boat race, but didn't make the first two. So we're going to see if it's going to make Jonesport. So I'm sure that's where the shot is. And then Motivation got sold. That was one of the fastest boats last year, owned by Tom Clemens out of Harpswell. Well, she's gone and is now owned on Vinyl Haven. And she's getting a, well, the Mac began at 900 horsepower, but it's got four turbos on it. And so that engine's been redone and it's going into the Motivation. And that's supposed to be, they hope to have it done for the last two races, but of course it didn't make it. So we think it's probably going to make a debut at Friendship. So that's because everybody's so busy. It's unbelievable, you know, through all of this, you know, with a lot of people down and home and not doing anything. The boat shops are in the other side of it. They're really just maxed out, hoping they can get everything done. Well, hope it keeps coming. Uh, Again, uh, things are changing. So uh, here was an interesting thing from the Bangor Daily News as well. President Donald Trump is directing the Department of Agriculture to bribe the U.S. lobster fishermen, it's mostly Maine people, with financial assistance to make up for lost income for Chinese tariffs. Mm-hmm. He signed a memorandum Wednesday in Maine calling on the agency to make available to lobster industry subsidies given to those who make soybean and other agricultural uh, products. Um, China is one of the biggest export destinations for lobster trapped in the Atlantic Ocean um, by Atlantic, uh, I'm sorry, U.S. and Canadian fishermen. Trump's tariffs on Chinese goods have resulted in retaliatory tariffs on U.S. lobster. Canadian fishermen not subject to punitive tariffs to control the market to the frustration of main lobster exporters. Trump's embrace of the issue comes as U.S. officials have expressed concern that China is also fallen short of its purchasing obligations under the initial trade deal for farm uh, uh, products, threatening the uh, product of uh, promises of his, uh, you know, hard-earned trade negotiations. And uh, I did not get to Google it before we talked, but uh, apparently the farm payouts are like in excess of bank payouts when the thing crashed in 08 um, and nobody talks about it lots mm-hmm. of fishermen get money uh, hey we're good but lord um, yeah, I know when Trump visited what was it a, nearly a month ago now he went yeah, up to, went to uh, uh, Guilford uh, right. swab factory and they had to close it and throw away the swabs but you know it's good to have them right and then you know there was uh, a meeting before that but some people weren't invited, which didn't go over quite well. And I'm not sure how and why that all took place. But I know that the day after there was a uh, kind of, you know, some sort of press release where he wanted China uh, and the EU uh, to make concessions or we were going to uh, put taxes or tariffs on their uh, automobiles coming into this country. 100%. You know? It's going to be interesting to see if we can get rid of 100 million pounds of lobster. That's one of the biggest worries. Now, he's a financial genius. I'm sure he knows what he's doing. 
He's got no lobster as well as everything else. He's got some yeah. tiny hands, you know. But it's going to be stuff. it's going to be difficult to get rid of that kind of that kind of poundage, like you know, say, especially uh, if those markets aren't open. Again, uh, zoom out is exactly what I'm saying, and it's not usual times, let alone right. Uh, just past 100 degrees above the Arctic Circle in Siberia last week. Mm-hmm. First time ever. Okay. Um, there are accelerating processes to the global warming thing that uh, will get out of hand, and one is the melting of the permafrost. It's got methane under it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's more bad than carbon dioxide. And uh, again, uh, Arctic Circle, uh, Gulf of Maine, warming faster than most places. Uh, you know, best of luck hoping for back to normal. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't think so. Yeah, we'll never know what normal was. <laughs> These are the good old days. That is scary to think about. These are the good old days. I think days. we saw them. We're old enough to have remembered them. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Grew up in the American dream. Everything always be better. We always win. Uh, you know, uh, right. you'll get ahead uh, with the good guys. Uh, you know, wow. Yeah, maybe. Can I share one more just uh, on the way out? This one is old. Hey, um uh, Skeptic of the world being round dies in a rocket crash. A California man said he wanted to fly to the edge of outer space to see if the world was round. Died after his homemade rocket blasted off in the desert sky and plunged back to Earth. I have a sign in my living room from a protest I went to. It's courtesy of my friend Alan Sprague. And it really cuts right to it. And, you know, let's, let's do it. Make Earth flat again. Simplify everything. Okay. Do you re- do you remember back in the was it the seventies or eighties there was a poster about the three boats of Columbus going off the edge of the earth and somebody yelling I told you so. Right. Oh, when you see dragons, turn around. I know That's that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, but make Earth flat again. Solve right. all the complications. There's John and Mike wrapping up this month's boat talk. Sorry, we're still unable to take phone calls during the show but you can contact us by email that's simply boattalk at gmail.com I'm Alan Sprague John will have the last word today all right great thank you Okay. Okay. I survive the pits of fish and take some home to Lizer. 